0: the fighting chaplain, a famous drawing, and a significant battlefield. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. On this episode, we present three stories, researched, written, and narrated by Paul Peralt, historian of the Saratoga County town of Malta. Before becoming Malta historian nine years ago, Peralt was a principal in the Boston Spa School District for about 20 years, and, before that, a history teacher at Shenandoah High School in Clifton Park, New York. He has a B.A. from Siena College, M.A.'s from SUNY at Albany. He's a member of the Saratoga County History Roundtable and edits their journal, The Grist Mill. We begin with a story called The Fighting Chaplain, the tale of Father Francis Kelly from Cohoes, New York, who served as a U.S. Army chaplain in World War I. After that war, he was the designated Roman Catholic chaplain who spoke at the burial of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery.
1: Hi, this is Paul Peral, Malta Town historian. It was almost impossible to move in Cohoes on Monday, October 19th, 1931. Company B of the National Guard was marching down Remsen Street from the armory to St. Bernard's Church, while throngs who could not get into the church stood in the surrounding streets. An estimated 200 priests from throughout the state, including Bishop Gibbons and members of all the veterans associations in the area, were part of the crowd that filled all of the seats and stood in the aisles of the church. Others jammed the vessels as well as the steps leading to the church, and the police were forced to clear a path for invited dignitaries. Francis Kelly had come home to Cohoes for the last time. Francis A. Kelly was born on April 19, 1888, to Francis and Mary Kelly, and he lived on Congress Street with his three siblings, Mary, John, and George. The family attended St. Bernard's Parish, where Francis was baptized, and where he served as an altar boy. Like many firstborn Irish boys, Francis chose the priesthood, preparing at Niagara University, and he was ordained in 1914. He was assigned to a parish in Albany, but he maintained his connections to Cohoes. In 1916, he was commissioned a chaplain in the New York National Guard and he served with the Mexican Border Expeditionary Force. When America entered World War I in April of 1917, he became the chaplain of the Coe's National Guard unit, Company B, which became part of the famous 27th Division, composed exclusively of New York National Guard members. From the moment he received his appointment, Father Kelly was described as the heart and soul of the 27th. Appointed division chaplain, he sailed with the boys to France in May of 1917. After training under experienced British officers, the 27th was assigned in September to break the German defenses of the Hindenburg Line. At a cost of 3,076 men wounded and killed, the New Yorkers fought through a maze of German machine gun nests and fortified positions, to capture the leading edge of the main German defenses and open the way for the Allies to go on the offense. In each battle, Father Kelly raced the fallen men to carry them out of harm's way and to give them the last rites. On October 4, 1918, a dispatch announced that Father Kelly had gone, quote, over the top three different times in one day to administer to the wounded in the battle north of Saint Quentin. On three occasions he was gassed, which permanently damaged his lungs and would lead to a premature death. One dying soldier scolded the priest for exposing himself to danger, as Kelly continued to administer to him. For his bravery, Father Kelly was awarded both the British Military Cross and the Distinguished Service Cross personally awarded by General Pershing. Second in esteem only to the Medal of Honor, the Distinguished Service Cross is referred to as the Soldiers' Medal. The citation read that Father Kelly was constantly in the front caring for the wounded and supervising the burial of the dead, often under heavy shell and machine gun fire. To these tributes were added the comments of the enlisted men who told how he had refused to stay behind the lines, insisting always on being with the troops. Father Kelly arrived back in America in late February of 1919 with the advanced detachment of the division, while the bulk of the troops would not return until the following month. Due to his early arrival and his unique story, he became the focus of the city's pride in their boys. He was also the first source of information about how many sons and brothers had met their fate. On February the 19th, he was met at the D&H Depot in Cohoes by a crowd that escorted him to City Hall to be greeted by the, the city fathers, and then on to Albany where he was met by the newly elected Governor Al Smith and where he addressed a joint session of the legislature. He then went to New York City to welcome the rest of the division but not before promising to return to Cohoes to recount the exploits of the 27th, specifically of the boys from Cohoes. As promised, Father Kelly returned on March 9th and he addressed a crowd of over 1,200 at the Cohoes Opera House, while hundreds more were unable to be admitted. He commented extensively on the deeds of the wonderful lads, the boys of the 105th Division, and particularly those of Company B., who had covered themselves in their kins with glory. Recognition for Father Kelly was not limited to Cohoes. At the first annual convention in November of 1919, the American Legion elected him national chaplain, and in November of 1921, he was selected to perform the rituals of the Catholic Church at the burial of the body of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. For years he had silently fought the onslaughts of tuberculosis, which he had contracted as a result of being gassed. In nineteen twenty three he spent time in the Adirondacks seeking a cure, and subsequently the Bishop assigned him only to rural parishes. But while assigned to Sacred Heart in Cairo, his old enemy returned, and he succumbed to pneumonia in October of nineteen thirty one. His body lay in state in Cairo on Sunday and then was escorted to Cohoes by the men of that parish. From 5 p.m. until 11 p.m. on Monday, thousands, including Lieutenant Governor Lehman, paid their respects, while a guard of honor composed of members of the American Legion posts stood guard. At the conclusion of the service, the church was open to those who had been unable to pay their respects earlier and when the church was again cleared, his mother, who had been too ill to attend the funeral, said her goodbyes. As the body was placed in the hearse, the band played, Nearer My God to Thee. The funeral cortege was escorted by members of Company B to a simple grave in St. Mary's Cemetery in Troy. Taps were played, and a firing squad gave a final salute. There he rests with his parents and his younger brother, George, who had died from pneumonia while serving in France.
0: You're listening to The Historian's Podcast with our guest, Malta town historian Paul Peralt. His next story tells about a famous picture of the Civil War Confederate prison in Andersonville, Georgia, drawn by Irish immigrant and Union soldier Thomas O'Day.
1: Hi, this is Paul Peralt, historian in the town of Malta. Today I'd like to tell you about O'Day's famous picture of Andersonville Prison. Perhaps nothing affected the psyche of the post-Civil War generation more than the image of the Confederate prison at Andersonville, Georgia. The very word Andersonville became synonymous with the atrocities which the country had inflicted on its sons, both Northern and Southern, In the 1890 census of Civil War veterans and widows, the single word, Andersonville, was acceptable in the disability-incurred category. Life at Andersonville was depicted in movies, novels, paintings, and in the written, written memoirs of those who survived. However, no depiction was better known by that generation than the pencil drawing done by a Coe's New York bricklayer and former guest at Andersonville, Thomas O'Day. Thomas O'Day was born in Ireland about 1847 and migrated with his family to Boston. In 1861, when the Civil War broke out, 14-year-old Tom wished to follow his older brother George into the Union Navy, but he was turned away and told, go home and grow up first. A determined lad, in July of 1863, he ran away to Maine and he enrolled as a drummer in the 16th Regiment of the Maine Infantry Volunteers. O'Day was captured during the Wilderness Campaign in May of 1864. Moved from one Confederate prison to another, he ended up at Camp Sumner in Andersonville, Georgia. Constructed in January of 1864, The camp was designed to house 10,000 prisoners. By the time of O'Day's arrival in the summer of 1864, there were 35,000 starving, sick, and or wounded men. During the 15 months the camp was operated, 13,000 prisoners died, and many of the survivors suffered for the rest of their lives with illnesses that they had contracted there over 40% of all Union prisoners of war who died during captivity perished at Andersonville. The terrible death rate was the result of insufficient food supplies, polluted water, lack of medical care, and, depending on your point of view, either the incompetence or the wickedness of the Confederate officers in charge. The only source of water was a stagnant, befouled stream that was used as a sewer and a bathing area. No barracks were provided to protect against the rain, heat, or cold. Many men were nearly naked. Food, when it was available, consisted of rancid grain and a few tablespoons of mealy beans or peas. Dysentery, gangrene, diarrhea, and scurvy were rampant. To make matters worse, roving bands of prisoners, known as raiders, attacked and robbed the fresh fish, i.e. the new prisoners. Sick or infirmed inmates were routinely relieved of their few possessions or rations. Captain Henry Wirtz, the commander of the Andersonville Prison, was the only Confederate soldier convicted and executed for war crimes at the conclusion of the war. Thomas O'Day was released from Andersonville in February of 1865. He was ill and emancipated with ragged trousers and broken shoes, his only possession. When he arrived home in Boston in July, bad news awaited him. His family had disappeared without a trace. For the rest of his life, Thomas would search in vain for news of his sister and parents. He would locate his brother George, but only after a 25-year search. Earning a living as an itinerant mason, O'Day ended up in Cohoes by the early 1870s. His years on the road must have acquainted him with many fellow Masons because he was elected General Secretary of the Bricklayers and Stonemasons Union of America. Over the years, O'Day had read many accounts of life in Andersonville, and he found them wanting. In 1879, he saw a photograph of the prison which appeared to imply that it was a well-organized camp with the appearance of cleanliness and order. He vowed to produce a truer description of the prison as he had known it. Feeling that he lacked the talent to write about his experiences, he decided on a pencil sketch, even though he had never drawn before. Working at night after a long day of laying brick, he took six years to complete the drawing. Relying exclusively on his memory, O'Day produced a a four-and-a-half-by-nine-foot bird's-eye panoramic view of the prison as it existed in August of 1864, when it did contain over 35,000 men. Surrounding the main scene are 19 sketches depicting specific aspects of life in the prison. In both the main scene and the marginal sketches, O'Day's pencil captured the essence of Andersonville, Filth, disease, hunger, and death. And near naked men lying in excrement, dead bodies thrown on a wagon like cordwood, prisoners being shot for getting too close to the deadline, gangs of raiders attacking the fresh fish as they entered the stockade, and dead bodies being stripped of their clothing, all are shown. However, amidst all the horror, O'Day also included two positive images, Providence Spring and Father Peter Whalen. The spring was an underground stream suddenly exposed one night by a bolt of lightning that provided fresh water, and Father Whalen was known as the Angel of Andersonville for administering to all creeds, colors, and nationality. In the lower right-hand corner, O'Day drew a self-portrait and in the history he took the opportunity to vent some built-up anger, not at his former Confederate wardens, but at those in the North who he felt had not shouldered their fair burden. He said, but the soldier has not forgotten. The soldier gave up his home, his blood, his life for his country. The bondholder gave his dollar, for which he reaped his Shylockian interest of a hundredfold. In order to pay the bondholder, the soldier must again suffer. The drawing apparently became an immediate hit. In 1887, O'Day set up a business and he ordered 10,000 lithograph copies. He sold them for $5 apiece, and he offered a reduced rate to G.A.R. post. A copy found its way to a post in Aurora, Illinois, and led to a reunion with Brother George. He moved from Summit Street in the mill section of Cahose to the more fashionable Walnut Street and changed his listing in the city directory from Mason to author and proprietor of O'Day's famous picture at Andersonville Prison. Prosperity may not have lasted as very long as his listing in the following year went back to Mason. In May of 1914, on the 50th anniversary of his capture, Thomas O'Day spent a week at Andersonville Prison, then operated by the War Department. He found a button from a northern uniform, and he discovered that Providence Spring was still running. One thing he did not find, however, was a copy of his picture, which had been removed due to Southern objections.
0: We'll have another story from Malta, New York, town historian Paul Peralt in just a moment. To continue producing the Historian's Podcast, we depend on your contributions to our 2020 fund drive. The goal is $4,500. The easiest way to contribute is online. We have a GoFundMe page, gofundme.com forward slash historians dash podcast dash 2020 dash fun dash drive. You can find the link to the GoFundMe page on our homepage at this uh, shorter address, bobcudmore.com. Or you can donate by mail. Make out a check to Bob Cudmore and send to 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Your ongoing support is much appreciated. You're listening to The Historian's Podcast with our guest, Malta town historian Paul Peralt. His next story tells about the Saratoga Battlefield, an important Revolutionary War site in upstate New York. The historic park at the site didn't open until 1927, the 150th anniversary of the 1777 Battle, which was considered to be the turning point in the American Revolution. Many people and organizations helped create the Battlefield Park in the 1920s, in particular Mayor George Slingerlands of Mechanicville and newly formed local Rotary Clubs. Here's the story.
1: Hello, this is Paul Perl, Malta Town Historian. The early 1920s was a period of intense growth in the rotary movement in the small communities of Saratoga, Washington, and Warren counties. Prior to May 1922, only four communities, Albany, Troy, Schenectady, and Amsterdam, had clubs. But as of May 1922, clubs in Glens Falls and Boston Spa were chartered, and they were followed quickly by Cobleskill, Granville, Mechanicsville, Saratoga Springs, Hudson Falls, and Cohoes. With the energy and enthusiasm of recent converts, they looked around for big projects to tackle in order to demonstrate their commitment to the ideals of Rotary. The upcoming 150th anniversary of the Battle of Saratoga, scheduled to take place in 1927, must have appealed to these live wires of the nearby Rotary Clubs, who quickly became a part of a movement which included citizens of Vermont and New England, and perhaps most importantly, two men, Adolph Ox, the owner of the New York Times, and George Slingland, mayor of Mechanicsville, and a founding member of the Mechanicsville Rotary Club. Because of Ox's social status, he is often cited as being the prime mover in the effort but this is what Ox said of Slingland's role. Quote, My interest in the battlefield of Saratoga is due to the enthusiasm, self-sacrifice, and patriotism of Mayor George Slinglands of Mechanicsville. He is the man who brought me to the field on September 18 and 19 of 1925. Over 400 Rotarians and their wives from New York, Vermont, and Massachusetts gathered at the site of the battlefield, which at that time was privately owned. Meeting on the porch of the Nielsen House, which was site of the American Army encampment in 1777, they passed a resolution calling on Rotarians to work for a 150th anniversary commemorative event, and they urged support for permanent recognition of the battlefield by either the state or the federal government. Spurred on in large part by Slingland's, this grassroots campaign took root and blossomed. Slinglins addressed Rotary Clubs in three states with his message, and the Boston Spa Club heard that message. Boston Spa Rotarians William Andrews and Thomas Curley became members of the Battlefield Celebration Committee. In 1926, due in large part to support from Rotarians, the state of New York approved the purchase of four farms and created a state historic preserve, which became known as Saratoga Battlefield. Slinglands was appointed the first superintendent, and he made the following pledge to the future. Saratoga will not be neglected in the future, as it has been in the past. New York State will not fail. The whole area will be acquired, the entrenchment, Restored, proper monuments and landscaping will glorify the field, and it will be Mecca of not only Rotarians but the whole nation, who will come here to do honour to our forefathers and to walk reverently over the sacred spots where our own United States was born. Anyone who has ever visited the battlefield knows how well Slingen's and those who followed in his footsteps kept this promise. One of Slingen's first duties was to begin planning for the upcoming 150th anniversary celebration, scheduled for October of 1927. Judging by the numbers involved, the celebration was a great success. An estimated crowd of 100,000 spectators and participants viewed the pageant and heard speeches from the governors of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and from Al Smith of New York. The 25,000 automobiles that tried to get to the event overwhelmed the primitive road system, and many were still in long lines at the the close of the day's program. Crowd control was handled by a 200-member contingent of state troopers and logistics by units of the New York National Guard. The pageant was directed by Percy Burrell, who was the king of pageants, Each of the 6,200 participants were provided with a four-page set of instructions, which included everything from the time and place of assembly to what to do about their costumes, and such items as chewing gum, wristwatches, and glasses, all of them prohibited. The pageant itself started at 2 p.m., but it was preceded by a 150-gun salute at 9 the dedication of the New Hampshire Monument at 10, and speeches by the three governors at 11. The show was described as a gigantic historic pageant depicted in dance, song, and drama, the opening scenes of the American Revolution, and more importantly, the striking events and episodes in the Battle of Saratoga. Participants included musicians, musicians, choristers, dancers, and volunteers costume as soldiers, farmers, Indians, and women and children of the time. The Saratogian newspaper announced that, quote, Boston Spa closed down shop this noon and went to the Saratoga Battlefield celebration. Scores of Bostonians, many of them taking part in the pageant, went to the historic battlefield this morning but that great exodus did not take place until early this afternoon. Stores, mills, offices, and shops closed at noon, and throughout the forenoon there was a hustle and bustle of people getting ready to go to the celebration. The New York Times featured a page one article describing the event as did also the Saratogian and the Boston Journal. For a few years after the celebration, The Mechanical Rotary Club held patriotic services annually at the battlefield on October 7th, the anniversary of the Battle of Bemis Heights. In 1929, Slinglins planned a special ceremony on October 17th to commemorate the British surrender, and he invited Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt to speak. FDR accepted, and he reminded Slinglins, quote, Do not forget that I cannot readily get up and down steps. After the excitement of the 150th anniversary celebration, Superintendent Slinglands began working towards including the battlefield in the National Park System. Although he did not live to see it, dying in 1932, in 1938, with the help of former governor and later President Franklin Roosevelt, the Saratoga Battlefield became part of the National Park System, as it remains today. In that same year, Area Rotary Clubs dedicated a memorial tablet, which is now located at the foot of the path leading to the visitor center, and it reads In memorandum in memory of George O. Slinglands, eighteen seventy two to nineteen thirty two. His vision, patriotism, and untying efforts. Were largely responsible for the acquisition, development, and preservation of the Saratoga Battlefield by the state of New York, erected by rotary clubs of this vicinity.
0: Our thanks to Paul Peralt, Malta Town historian, for stories heard on this podcast, Father Francis Kelly, the fighting chaplain, Thomas O'Day's famous drawing of the Civil War's Andersonville Prison, and Saratoga Battlefield. Keralt has been Malta historian for nine years. Before that, principal of Ballston Spa School District for 20 years and a history teacher at Shenandoah High School in Clifton Park before that. He has a B.A. from Siena College, M.A.'s from SUNY at Albany. He's a member of the Saratoga County History Roundtable and edits their journal, The Grist Mill. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.